Welcome to Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. So Mark, we're going to actually start this episode with a quote by you. Okay. Well, that makes me a little anxious, Shani. I, I think it's a good quote. I just don't think you should be anxious about it. But uh, the quote is from our episode on the big four banks, which we published on March the 12th and recorded the Thursday before. And I asked you if you invested in banks and you said the following, banks are extremely complicated and have a history of blowing up. So I'm just a bit gun shy right now and prefer simple businesses. Well, that was very well-timed. Yes, it was, because two days after you said it, Silicon Valley Bank blew up. And that is what we're going to talk about today. We'll spend a couple of minutes explaining what happened, but we want to take a different approach than what what you're seeing in the media. We're going to talk about lessons that everyday investors can take from the debacle which hopefully will improve the way you invest and manage your finances. Okay, we'll start very briefly with the story. So Silicon Valley Bank was an institution that targeted and catered for the Silicon Valley ecosystem. So that means startups, venture capital firms, private equity firms, and just that whole mob. And in a low interest rate environment, when funding for all of those types of firms was prolific, the bank did very well. They also had an enormous amount of cash deposited with them. But as the economic environment changed, these cash inflows started to dry up and eventually they started losing deposits. And this makes sense because with higher interest rates, the buckets of cash that were getting shoveled at startups through private equity and venture capital started to reduce and they were simply spending some of the cash sitting in the bank. And this is pretty similar to what we saw during COVID with people. Savings increased during COVID and now are getting drawn down since a cup of coffee costs a month's wage. And Silicon Valley Bank simply ran out of money and couldn't pay back their depositors, which caused the bank to fail. Now, a lot happened in between, which we will get to as we go through the lessons. But, you know, just that simple fact gets us to our first lessons. All right. So you're really building up the suspense here by leaving out parts of the story and foreshadowing that it will come later. I I am. I'm like the Alfred Hitchcock of podcasting, right, Shani? But get to the first lesson. First lesson is pretty simple. Cash is king. And all the talking heads in the media are droning on about asset and liability mismatch. But jargon aside, this is a problem that most of us intuitively understand. Not having cash when you need it is a big problem. And doesn't really matter what assets you have and what they might be worth in the future if you have an immediate need of cash. You know, do you watch mob movies ever, Shani? Um, name one. I don't know. Goodfellas? No. Okay. Well, anyway, this whole this whole thing, it's like when that mob goon shows up to collect a debt and you just have to have his money. You know, in Australia, goon is like cheap wine. I, I try to avoid cheap wine, Shani, but, uh, <laughs> but that's good to know. So I meant the mobster. The mobster shows up and he says he's going to break your legs if he doesn't get money right away. I mean, you can get broken bones from goon too. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess that's true, but let's go back to cash for a second here. So cash gets a bad rap, and many of those criticisms may be valid. The return on cash is low, it's often outpaced by inflation, and that's certainly something we're seeing now. Even as interest rates go up, what you're getting on a savings account or term deposit is still less than inflation. And there's also the opportunity cost of cash. When your money is sitting in cash and you're not getting the benefits of a higher long-term expected return from investing in shares. And this gets us back to Silicon Valley Bank. So we talked earlier about the surge of deposits that they received. 
Well, banks invest deposits to try and earn a return. So some of them, of course, are loaned out, but they can also invest that money to earn interest. Well, Silicon Valley Bank decided that they would invest some of their cash in 10-year mortgage bonds. Now, these are very safe investments. They're fully backed by the U.S. government. And basically, that just means they were going to get paid back as long as they could hold those bonds to maturity. But the issue was that they did this before interest rates climbed last year. As listeners to our episode on bonds know that bond prices move inversely to interest rates. So interest rates going up made the bonds the bank held go down in value. Now, as Mark said earlier, if they held the bonds to maturity, this wouldn't be a problem. But instead, the bank got into a situation where they couldn't meet their cash needs. Their deposits were dropping and they needed to give cash back to their customers, but they didn't have enough. And instead, they had to sell the bonds. And we'll rejoin this story in a second, but this gets to the earlier point of the absolute necessity of having cash available to cover the unpredictability of life. And we need to put ourselves into positions as investors to let our investments achieve their intended purpose. Silicon Valley Bank needed to hold those bonds to maturity. For the shares we invest in, we need to allow them to compound over the long term. We know we'll be getting higher overall returns over the long term, but we also know that there are times when they are going to go down in value, and that is when we absolutely don't want to sell them. And the key to successful investing is to be in control and not let outside events dictate your actions. And we maintain control by planning, and we also maintain control by having an adequate emergency fund to ride out the unpredictability of life. So yes, emergency funds are boring, and I feel like I do nag sometimes when I talk about them, but they are also critically important to protect the money that you do invest. And when I was younger, I just couldn't wrap my head around putting cash in a bank account instead of investing it. But as I've gotten older, an emergency fund really helps me sleep at night, gives me a sense of control because I know that unexpected expenses will not derail my long-term financial plan. But I'm also a big fan of my emergency fund. I find it critical to my financial well-being. I've always thought of it as a contributor to my ability to achieve my goals rather than holding me back with a low return. And this notion extends beyond an emergency fund. I've talked about the approach taken with my mother for her retirement, which is a modification of the bucket approach. I have five years of living expenses for her sitting in cash. And yes, the return isn't high, but it gives peace of mind and it gives her the ability to have the rest of her portfolio invested in shares, which will generate higher long-term returns. We're actually recording this on your mom's birthday. So happy birthday to Karen. Uh, yes. Happy happy birthday, mom. I got you <laughs> shares in Silicon Valley Bank, a gift you really can't put a price tag on. I feel like you should have gone for SJ. Yeah, I haven't checked actually in a couple of days. We should, we'll do that after this. But let's get back to Silicon Valley Bank and their whole saga. So we mentioned how they had experienced losses on the bonds, but these losses weren't immediately apparent because accounting law stated that they didn't have to recognize losses if their intention was to hold the bonds until maturity. So in a way, they were masked a bit, legally masked. The accounting term that is used to describe reflecting the true valuation of assets held is called mark to market. And what happened with Silicon Valley Bank was that when they were forced to sell a portion of the bonds they held, it changed the accounting rules. So now that it was obvious that they weren't, wouldn't be holding bonds until maturity, they had to mark them to market. And the disclosure that they had sold these bonds and the need to mark them to market, that began the downfall of the bank. But we'll pause again in the story to once again offer another lesson for individual investors, and that is around the way bonds work. As we stated earlier, a change in interest rates has an impact on bond prices. Interest rates go up and bond prices go down. But many investors think about bonds in the way that Silicon Valley Bank and the accounting rules view bonds. 
that investing in bonds is safe as long as the issuer of the bonds doesn't default. And that is true if you buy an individual bond. There's no default. You will get back your principal at maturity, and you've locked in a return based on the interest rate of these bonds. So if you buy $1,000 worth of bonds at issuance at a 4% interest rate, you will earn a 4% return. Sounds pretty easy, but that is not how most people buy bonds. Most people access them through a fund or ETF. As listeners are aware, a fund or ETF is a basket of securities. That basket of bonds is either dictated by an index if it is a passive fund or ETF or picked by managers if it is active. But the nature of a basket of securities is different than buying an individual bond or a group of individual bonds. And basically that basket will just exist until the ETF or fund is actually shut down. So while some bonds are naturally maturing, there are also new bonds constantly added to the basket. So as a living thing, this basket of securities will continue to be impacted by changes in interest rates. So there's no set maturity that just returns the principal to an ETF or fund investor. Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio, and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly global best ideas. Explore our ETF model portfolios. Plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX-listed stocks. Stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor, and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager, integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSite. Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four-week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes. So if interest rates keep going up, a bond or ETF will keep going down in price. In theory, you could have negative returns for years if interest rates continue to rise. And there is no real way you can lock in a return like with buying an individual bond because interest rates of the overall portfolio will keep changing as new bonds are added at different interest rates. And this is definitely something to keep in mind if you're investing in bonds or an ETF or fund. And we've heard a lot about how what's happening at Silicon Valley Bank and now what's happening at Credit Suisse is going to cause central banks to pause interest rate rises. But just be careful because they could still go up if inflation is not under control. All right, Shani, let's finish up the Silicon Valley bank story. We're finally here. We are. Okay. We are. But I'm building suspense, as I said I would. So once it became apparent that Silicon Valley Bank has been forced to sell their bonds and take a loss on them, people started to get worried their money wasn't safe. And that began a good old bank run. More people withdrew their funds from the bank, which meant the cash they raised from the sale of the bonds wasn't enough to cover what they needed to give back to depositors. And this is illustrative of a bank. Fractional reserve banking is how all banks operate. That means that they only hold a fraction of the money that they owe depositors. The rest of the money is used to make money for the bank. This includes money that is lent out and money that is used to invest in things like the bonds that Silicon Valley Bank bought. And this whole system is built on the fact that banks operate under the assumption that everybody won't ask for their money back at the same time. And what prevents bank runs is confidence. Confidence that banks are regulated and won't be reckless in what they do with their money. Confidence that the bank will have enough money so that you know it's available when you need it. And there are things that have been put in place to increase this confidence. 
Part of this is that there is regulation in place and part of it comes from the fact that there is insurance up to a certain amount that will pay you back if something happens to the bank. This confidence was lost in Silicon Valley Bank by large depositors who had way more money than what is insured, which is $250,000 in the U.S. So this bank failure was brought about by a couple things. There was a lack of liquidity because the bank had invested in longer-term assets. There were questions about valuation of assets held by the bank, and there was a lack of transparency into what was happening. And one of the interesting things about Silicon Valley Bank was that their customer base was very concentrated, as we said at the beginning. Tech startups, venture capital, and private equity firms. Well, they've been having a hard time. Cash is drying up with high interest rates, and the funding from investors has dropped. And the interesting thing about Silicon Valley is that while the popular perception is that it is the big publicly traded tech companies that make up Silicon Valley, it has transitioned to be more focused on private investments. And this brings us to private assets, lack of transparency, questions about valuations, and mark-to-market, and a lack of liquidity. And we're now shifting our focus to industry super funds. According to ASFA's superannuation statistics, an average my super fund holds over 20% of assets in unlisted property, infrastructure, and private equity. In total, $232 billion is allocated to these assets. We have very little insight into what these assets are and at what valuation they are held. This is because in Australia, full portfolio holdings disclosure is not required. There are a bunch of excuses the financial services industry uses to justify this lack of transparency, and they're really not worth going into because they are largely nonsense. Every other developed country requires full holdings disclosure, and they're all doing just fine. And investors should demand to know what their super fund is invested in and what the valuation is of those assets. And Canva is a good example, an Aussie startup that is privately held. It's held by large institutional investors, either directly or through private equity and venture capital funds. Well, one of those investors is Franklin Templeton. They wrote down the value of their private Canva investment by 58% in 2022. We know this because Franklin Templeton's fund is required to do this under the law in the US. And the mark-to-market on Canva makes sense. After all, publicly traded small-cap technology shares had a terrible year in 2022. There's no plausible reason why a private company wouldn't follow their lead. And these assets being written down by super funds? Well, we just don't know. We do know that a changing interest rate environment does change valuation levels, and a good deal of money was plowed into these assets when interest rates were low. One would assume they are worth less now. And Upper is concerned about valuations of private assets. They launched an unlisted asset valuation thematic review and highlighted, and I'll quote, the need for considerable improvement in industry approaches to valuations and the need to conduct valuations proactively and regularly. But we'll wait to see what happens. Along with the lack of transparency, there's also the question of liquidity. Selling private investments is not like selling a publicly traded share. These sales take time. If you want to do it quickly and are a motivated seller, the prices can be impacted. Most industry super funds are comfortable with this lack of liquidity as they have relatively young members who are expected to continue to contribute for years before they need to withdraw assets to pay for retirement. But a super fund is, a very, is very different than a pension fund where members are locked into a single plan for life. We all have a choice about where our super is invested. If there's a lack of confidence about valuation levels, there is a possibility and a slim possibility of a run on the bank. If members transfer enough funds private investments will need to be sold off. A sale of an asset that is sparsely transacted 
would give the market a view on what somebody's actually willing to pay for similar assets, something the models used for valuation may not be accurately capturing. This could create a cascading effect where more assets are marked to market. And we certainly don't think this is anything to panic about. I invest my super with Aussie Super, which is one of the biggest investors in private assets. But a situation involving a lack of transparency on assets held and their valuation, huge increases in the amount of funds allocated to private assets, concerned regulators, and little liquidity is worth monitoring, especially after interest rates have risen at an unprecedented speed. And transparency is the best disinfectant. There's no reason I shouldn't know what my super fund holds. It is my money after all. There's no reason that the valuation levels of these are not more transparent. I think that many of these assets will be great long-term investments. I wrote an article talking about infrastructure investments, and I've been open about the fact that I'm invested in Aussie Super because of this allocation. But Super makes up a relatively small part of my portfolio. That isn't the case for many people who have lived in Australia their whole working life. The current system around holding disclosures is wrong. All investors should know what they're invested in. That is what allows you to make good investment decisions. All right, so we have finished up our Silicon Valley Bank episode. Maybe we'll do one on Credit Suisse next week. You never know. Or some other bank that goes under. But thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate it. We would love any comments or ratings in your podcast app. Thank you. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.